Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so happy to be here with you today, and I appreciate you coming out on this gorgeous, suddenly summer day, when I'm sure you have lots of other things going on in your lives. Um, and I'm really grateful to Michelle for the invitation um, and for all of you for reading my work and spending time with my poems. Um, I'm going to read some poems uh, to start with from Elevated Threat Level, which just came out last September. And then I'll read you a few poems as well, translations from Oliverio Girondo, the avant-garde Argentine poet who I translated with Harris Feinsod. And then to, clo to close, I'll read you just a couple poems from a new project that I'm working on now. So uh, I will start with a poem called Ortolins. And you might be familiar with this small bird the ortolan that is eaten whole, right? It's considered a delicacy. Um, it is, let me get this right, it's legal to eat them, but not legal to buy or sell them. So this puts you in a sort of bind, right, in France. Um, and uh, this is one of the things that François Mitterrand consumed in his last meal, his last uh, feast before he died, which you'll hear in the poem. Ortolans. Speaking of blindness, the man told his one-eyed fiance, have you heard about the Ortolans? Fig peckers of yellowhammer descent, thumb-sized or tongue-sized. Kings used to catch them at summer's end, knife blind them so that in darkness they would feast on millet, a break from beetles and seeds, until they grew from one ounce to four. Drowned in Armagnac, plucked, Placed in a saucepan, roasted, you eat them whole so that the head dangles between your lips. You crunch bones like hazelnuts underneath the linen napkin that you place over your head to create a scent tent, or so God won't see your shame. Proust paired them with sips of Ikem, a sauterne born of noble rot. Grapes like ashes, picked in the nick of time, so honeysuckle turns to bitter finish. Mediterranean salt emerges as flight bursts in your mouth. Imagine yourself a memory, a body full of meal, as Mitterrand must have, eating ortolans eight days before dying, his last illegal act. 15 minutes of savoring a supple, burning ball of fat until you exhaust its roast juices. When you swallow, you will regret the end of a sensual experience. Just once, pay the price for this folly. So as, as Michelle mentioned, many of the poems in this book are concerned with uh, what I would call mediated witnessing, watching events, political events, events of war happen from a distance, and what it means to be a citizen of a nation that's taking all kinds of actions in your name um, very far away, right? And how do we sort of experience that and have access to it, and what kind of complicity um, are we part of? And it's also a book that thinks a lot about the safety of journalists, investigative journalists who are doing the hard work of finding out what's going on um, and who are particularly um, at risk around the world in countries around the world. And the closing down of newspapers, which is something that um, 
I've been concerned with for the past decade or so. One by one, newspapers have been closing down around the country, as I'm sure you're aware, and shifting to digital platforms and other ways of getting information. But still, the actual newspaper that you hold in your hands um, is harder and harder to get. And so I wrote this elegy for the newspaper called Gutenberg Nation. And there is a shout out to Pittsburgh, the beginning of the poem. So I wanted to be sure to read this one here. And the poem bears an epigraph from Joseph Pulitzer, which reads, Our Republic and its press will rise or fall together. Gutenberg Nation. Pittsburgh Tribune Review. Born 1811, died 2016. Ann Arbor News, born 1835, died 2009. Rocky Mountain News, Colorado's first newspaper, born 1859, died 2009. And I should say everything in this poem is true. Seattle Post-Intelligencer, the voice of the Northwest, born 1863, died 2009. Tucson Citizen, born 1870, died 2009. Kentucky Post, born 1883, died 2007. Rise or fall together. Cincinnati Post, born 1881, died 2007. Tampa Tribune, life printed daily. Born 1893, died 2016. South Idaho Press, born 1904, died 2008. Rise or fall together. Albuquerque Tribune, born 1922, died 2008. Give light, and the people will find their own way. World's greatest newspaper. A fearless and wide-awake democratic newspaper. Covers Dixie like the dew. Liked by many, cussed by some, read by them all. A clean, newsy newspaper for the home. Fanning the flames of discontent. Open to all parties, but influenced by none. The oldest newspaper west of the Mississippi. The only newspaper in the world that gives a damn about Yarrington. The truth is always fair. The lively one with a mind of its own. The best paper, the brightest paper, the cheapest paper. Good paper, good ink, good work, prompt delivery. Discover what's in it for you. Monarch of the dailies. The world is governed too much. Our country is the world. Our countrymen are mankind. Power is always stealing from the many to the few. If you don't want it printed, don't let it happen. And to follow along the same theme, um, I wrote a series of short poems that thread through the book, which are written in the form of a fait divers, which is the French form of a very short newspaper item. Uh, Félix Fénéon, at the end of the 19th century, sort of perfected um, the fait divers, getting a long, convoluted story into one short, tiny, run-on sentence. And so I gave myself the constraint of trying to do the same thing. And part of the reason that I thought of doing this was I noticed on December 23rd, 2009, uh, three different stories in the newspaper on the same day of journalists being murdered in different places in the world. And I was thinking about that convergence on that one day. So there's a series of six of these throughout the book. I'll just read you three of them. 
December 23, 2009. A prominent opposition journalist in Kyrgyzstan, whose autocratic president had been courted by the United States as an ally for the war in Afghanistan, died Tuesday after being thrown last week from a sixth floor window, his arms and legs bound with duct tape. December 23, 2009. The smell of the bomber's spent explosives filled the air as rescue workers and the police hurried to secure forensic evidence, retrieve body parts, and ferry the wounded to the hospital after a suicide bomber blew himself up while entering the press club in Peshawar. December 23, 2009. The captive has become a correspondent after his release from seven years of imprisonment at Guantanamo Bay, the only journalist among the 779 known detainees, a 40-year-old native of Sudan, is back at work at Al Jazeera, leading a desk devoted to human rights and public liberties. So the poem that opens the book is called In My Sight Sister, and I think of it as very connected to the poems that I just read to you. Um, I wrote this uh, thinking about footage that I had seen online that was released by WikiLeaks of a bombing in Baghdad in 2007 in which um, this is American um, footage where you can hear the helicopter pilots of the Apache helicopters as they're bombing this neighborhood in Baghdad where they killed a number of civilians, including children and journalists and photojournalists working for Reuters. And I was thinking about the, uh, the disturbing experience that I felt watching this on my laptop in my apartment, um, watching people being killed from this vantage point where you're sort of in the shooter's um, vantage point. Um, and uh, 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 that's what led to, to writing this poem. It's called In My Sight's Sister. My eyes are polished smooth by sight. They clot like crystals in storm glass, like beakers of toxin. If we had seen what had been done, what the helicopter pilot did in our name, what the special ops team did in our name, what they did with their hands in our name. What if it were my sister? What if it were her? What? If we had seen with our own smooth eyes. Every last one of us wears knee-high boots, my lovely. We live in a booted nation, a nation girded and gunning. This moment, this is precisely all. Watching takes work. Sight takes hours, takes my eyeglasses, every last one, as if they were yours. You can see there's a sigh in our sight. What if it were my sister? What if it were? What, what? What we saw ground into our eyes with the photos, with the newspaper reports. What would I say? What can I say? What would I say if it were my sister, my own? My own beakers of toxin, my own boots, my own hands in my own name.
next poem is called Here Comes the Radioactive Plume. And um, this is a poem that I wrote uh, thinking about, do you remember the newspaper coverage of the nuclear disaster at Fukushima where the nuclear um, plume was described circling the globe, right? It was called a plume. And I was thinking why this word plume for this... this um, a quantity of toxic air, right? And I was thinking about it circling the globe and tying us together, sort of like a wedding ring, binding us all together. So I wrote an epithalamian, a poem on the occasion of a marriage um, called Here Comes the Radioactive Plume, an epithalamian for Fukushima. When iodine-131 and cesium-137 reached the East Coast after 11 days, the newspaper called it a plume, but let's call it a shank. A radioactive shank, a line of pots attached to a rope for catching crabs and whelks dragged in shallow water. Or like the part of a harpoon between socket and mouth. A shank like a broom handle, a rake, a spade, an axe head, pipe stem, ladle handle, chimney tunnel, an alembic neck, a foot stalk, a shank like a joint of meat like the blank part of a screw bolt between thread and head, a mine shaft, a radioactive plume that tangs as a knife does or a chisel does, a tool that goes on tanging, an instrument that continues to sing, set your house in order, set your house in order. You might glimpse me between the willows, tracking the ox, dreaming of riding at home, a shank like a lug, a stud, an ear between an oar's blade and its handle. Hook, net, remainder. Will you remember the short rope made of radioisotopes? A golf ball struck with the heel of a club, the part of a ring that encircles the finger. Which part of a ring does not encircle the finger? Or any appendage like tooth's fang, shoe's waist. If the whole universe is a fisherman's net, said the monk and coughed. Let's call it a shank. Let's sign the marriage contract. Let's lift each other on our shoulders and circle round. Stem of a goblet, crushed. Side piece of a spur, crushed. You might see me in the far left corner, right here, trying to catch a catfish with a small gourd. One of my surprises in writing this book uh, over a number of years was that I did end up writing in a number of forms, even though I generally write in free verse. And there's sonnets in this book. I have a number of sonnets. Some of them rhyme, some of them don't. Um, this is an unrhymed sonnet. It's called After the War, and it's dedicated to my grandfather, uh, who died about two years ago this week. after the war. When he got to the farmhouse, he rifled through the cabinets, drawers, and cupboards, and his buddies did too. The place was abandoned, or so he thought, and his buddies did too. He tried to talk to people in town, and his buddies did too, but he was the only one whose Yiddish made it across into German. They took his meaning, he, in the farmhouse, took a camera and a gun. But his buddies, who knows? 
About the gun, it's also hard to say, but after the war, he took up photography. Why not? And shot beautiful women for years. Got pretty good at it, and how. Won prizes and engraved plates. Put them in a drawer. Forgot the war. Forgot his buddies. Forgot the women. Forgot the drawer. And the last poem I'll read to you from this collection um, is called My Life with Private Equity. You may have been following, perhaps you're as concerned as I am, about the way that private equity firms are taking over public services so that if you call 911 for an ambulance or a fire truck, uh, you may get one that's owned by a private equity firm. Right? And so you might have a bill you didn't expect. They might deliver service that you didn't expect. Newspapers are owned by private equity firms, water, other public utilities, um, schools. Uh, anyhow, uh, they seem to be repeating all of the same economic <laughs> mistakes that led to the crisis in 2008. So <laughs> here we go again. Uh, so I wrote a poem called My Life with Private Equity. I wake up and stumble into the bathroom, tear off some toilet paper produced by a private equity firm. I pour a fresh glass of water provided by private equity. Private equity wants to know who I'll see today, where I'll go, and when. I jump in the shower, closing the striped curtain of private equity. Private equity fabricates each minute on the clock. I realize it's time to pay my mortgage to a private equity firm that used to be called a corporate raider. Remember the 1980s when corporations used poison pills and golden parachutes to avoid golden handshakes? Back when Gordon Gecko said greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Behind my earlobes, I spritz a little ode to private equity. I apply my private equity eye makeup while private equity keeps a private eye on me in the mirror, and I swallow my morning private equity drugs, blow my nose into the soft tissue of private equity, which records my secretions, for lack of a better word. Private equity is charting my biostats and wants to know my waking temperature. Private equity is tracking when I'll menstruate. I throw on a private equity scarf over my private equity clothing, zip up my coat courtesy of private equity, which wishes to test the pH balance of my sweat and measure my immune system. I confess to you, I know that tonight when I get home, private equity will be lounging on the couch waiting up for me. Private equity wants its own private dancer. Private equity wants me to take my top off. It's going to ask me to caress it, stroke it, pinch it. Private equity is ready for anything. Private equity wants in. It's gotten good and greedy. It's taught me to be voracious just the way it likes. And now private equity wants me to say it's sexy. Sexy, sexy business. Sexy equity. Sexy and all up in my private business, my privacy, it's piracy. It wants me to just say it. Just say it. And it wants me. So to change tone just a little bit, I'm going to read you some poems from decals. We're going to rewind about 100 years. Um, Oliverio Girondo is a wonderful Argentine poet who is friends with Jorge Luis Borges. You may have 
read some of his work. Um, they were part of the same scene of writers and artists in Buenos Aires at this moment. Um, they had a fight over a woman, Hironda won. Uh, but <laughs> um, he was known for all kinds of performances, happenings, and publicity stunts. So for one of his books, which we did not translate, called Espantapájaros, Scarecrow, he uh, built a scarecrow out of paper mache and hired a hearse led by six horses to go through the streets of Buenos Aires, handing out pamphlets to announce that his book had been published. And then he rented what we would call like a pop-up storefront, where he had young ladies selling the books, and he sold 5,000 in a month, which honestly is still unheard of for poetry. You know? <laughs> so this is, uh, we translated his first two books from 1922 and 1925. Uh, the first one is called um, 20 Poems to be Read on a Car. It's very urban. It's very much thinking about modernization. Electricity was new. Trains were new. Streetcars were new. And he wrote poems about the experience of crossing the street and dodging the streetcars. Um, the second book is called uh, Calcomania, uh, or this is where the word decals come from. These are stickers that you might put on your luggage trunk to indicate all of the fabulous places that you've traveled, right? So it's a kind of public display of your middle and upper class status as someone who travels and gets to know all kinds of quote unquote exotic places, right? Um, so I translated this book with a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, Harris Feinsod. Um, we had great fun doing this. It took many years. Uh, and I'm gonna read um, just three poems to give you a taste. Two very short poems from the, the first book um, uh, to give you a feel for this kind of urban grittiness and um, surreal, almost we would call it, um, uh, surprises that the city has to offer to the casual pedestrian. Maybe I'll read this one in Spanish so that, yeah, okay. Uh, I'll read it in Spanish and then in English. Apunte callejero. En la terraza de un café hay una familia gris. Pasan unos senos viscos buscando una sonrisa sobre las mesas. El ruido de los automóviles destiñe las hojas de los árboles. En un quinto piso, alguien se crucifica al abrir de par en par una ventana. Pienso en dónde guardaré los kioscos, los faroles, los transeúntes que se me entran por las pupilas. Me siento tan lleno que tengo miedo de estallar. Necesitaría dejar algún lastre sobre la vereda. Al llegar a una esquina, mi sombra se separa de mí y de pronto se arroja entre las ruedas de un tranvía. Street note. A gray family sits on the cafe terrace. Cross-eyed breasts pass by, surveying the tables for a smile. The sound of motor cars blanches the tree leaves. On the fifth floor, Someone is crucified, throwing the window wide open. I think about where I will store the kiosks, street lamps, passers-by that enter through my pupils. I feel so full, I fear I'll burst. I might need to drop some ballast on the walkway. When I arrive at a corner, my shadow separates from me and suddenly throws itself under the wheels of a streetcar. One of the exciting things about publishing this book was that we were able to include some watercolors that Hirondo made. 
Um, this is from the original 1922 edition. I don't know that you can see this very well, but it's somebody playing the bandoneon, which is like an accordion, accordion but not an accordion, um, which is a key instrument of tango music, uh, which comes from Argentina. Um, as an aficionado of tango, uh, this is one of my favorite poems in the book. It's called Milonga, which is uh, both a kind of dance, a kind of music, and a place where you dance tango, a social dance. Milonga. On the tables, decapitated bottles of champagne with clownish white neckties, nickel pails whose reflection slims the cocotte's arms and back. The bandoneon sings with the lazy stretch of a lovesick worm, conflicts with the carpet's red hair, magnetizes nipples, pubises, shoe tips. Males who bend in half with a ritual slice, head sunk between their shoulders, Mugs inflated with crude words. Females with fidgety haunches, a little foam in their armpits and over-oiled eyes. Suddenly, you hear glass breaking. The tables buck and give four kicks in the air. An enormous mirror collapses along with the columns and the people inside, while in a tide of arms and backs, punches flare like a burst of Bengal lights. Together with the watchman, dawn enters dressed in violet. And then just one more from Hirondo. This is from the second book. It's called Express Train. And a lot of the poems from this book were written in places around Europe that he traveled to. And he would put at the end of the poem the place where he had written it, the place it was written about, and a date. And in this one, it says Spain, question mark, 1870, question mark, 1923, question mark. And part of what he's getting at there is how parts of Spain seemed really, really modernized and other parts didn't. And so the train is at once a sign of that modernization, but also its inefficiency and its slowness make it seem somehow belonging to 50 years ago. So express train. The carriages slide over the frets of the tracks to sing on their two strings the landscape's grit. Fields of stone where vines shoot a menacing hand out of the earth. Nags who lead ascetic lives aiming to enter the bullring. Haggard hogs gone mad who think they're Salome because their hams are so rosy. On the crest of the crag, dressed for First Communion, the villagers' houses kneel at the font of a church. They press together, they lift it as if it were a monstrance. They are anesthetized by siesta and the tintinabulation of bells. At the risk that the trip will end for good, the locomotive propels the stones at 16 kilometers per hour, and when it can't go on any longer, it stops, <laughs> panting. Sometimes it usually happens that a station is precisely there. Bells whistles, shouts, and the engine driver who says goodbye to the station chief seven times, and the parrot who's the only passenger to protest the 14-hour delay, and the girls who come to see the train pass because it's the only thing that comes to pass. Suddenly, the carriages slide over the frets of the tracks to sing on their two strings the landscape's grit. Fields of stone where vines shoot a menacing hand out of the earth. Nags who lead ascetic lives aiming to enter the bullring. Haggard hogs gone mad who think they are Salome because their hams are rosy. In the first-class compartments, the seats screw springs into us and uncork our kidneys, while spiders practice their fireman exercises around the lamp that burns on the ceiling. 
At the risk that the trip will end for good, the locomotive propels the stones past at 16 kilometers per hour, and when it can't go on any longer, it stops panting. Will we arrive at dawn or tomorrow evening? Through the grimy windows, dusk scares off flocks of shadows that creep out from the rocks while we go on burying ourselves in catacomb light. You can hear the song of women peeling stew vegetables for the day after tomorrow, the snore of soldiers, which assures us, without knowing why, that they've taken their boots off, the numbers of the lottery summary, which all the passengers learn by heart since they haven't found anything else to read at the newsstands. If we could have at least cozied an eye up to one of those pinholes in the sky, bells, whistles, shouts, and the engine driver who says goodbye to the station chief seven times, and the parrot who's the only passenger to protest the 27-hour delay, and the girl who comes to see the train pass because it's the only thing that comes to pass. Suddenly, the carriages slide over the frets of the tracks to sing on their two strings the landscape's grit. Hirondo. So I will... uh, finish by just reading three poems from a new project that I'm writing, a manuscript that's just about done. Mm. And I thought I would read this first one because it's May 1st, and it's International Labor Day, and um, uh, which is a holiday that was begun because of riots in Chicago, where I live in 1886, the Haymarket riots, as workers were protesting um, to try to get an eight-hour workday, which seems quite reasonable, right? Um, so this is a poem that's dedicated to Dolores Huerta, who is a labor leader and civil rights activist who co-founded the United Farm Workers um, with uh, Cesar Chavez in the 60s and led the strike um, of the Delano grape workers in 1964 in California. And she's the one who actually coined, in case you were wondering, the phrase, si se puede, yes we can, which Obama then used later. And her name, Dolores Huerta, it occurred to me, uh, means, uh, could mean Garden of Sorrows. So this poem is called Garden of Sorrows. Dolores Huerta, we need you. You prepared the soil. We are planting a vegetable garden inside your name. Dolores Huerta, we, your sorrows, we know what you gave. Dolores, we will say. Dolores, you were not tall, but your voice was tall. Your voice, Dolores, it brought men and women out from the fields. You held portraits of the lost up to the faces of the senators. You held the skin of the poisoned and the limbless babies in the light of your voice. You insisted that birth defects are not just an occupational hazard. We watched you and saw that speaking up is an occupational hazard. You birthed 11 children and held up the farm workers You told your children their birthright was a meaningful life. You gave megaphones to the poor in the light of your voice. Dolores Huerta, we know your name. Later, they called your children in to testify, for a woman can only be one thing, and being a good mother is not easy. You kept moving instead of sitting still. You kept speaking instead of staying silent. You gave megaphones to the poor in the light of your voice. Dolores Huerta, we know your name. You birthed your children and you led a revolution. Dolores Huerta, you didn't ask for permission. You were the first general I followed into war.
this new book has a series of poems called Corpse Pose. Um, I've written a number of them, and this one is called Corpse Pose. Pretend you are dead, and we will eat you. My four-year-old nieces insist I lie still and close my eyes. Pretend that you're really dead. They make munching sounds, yum, 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 while pretending to eat my torso. Then S grabs her doll, saying, I'm going to eat this baby, yum, yum. At night, I look in the mirror and whisper, hello, baby. Pretend you are dead, and I begin chewing. At the Hyowon Healing Center in South Korea, you can practice your own death, write your own obituary, and give it a trial run. Among candles and chrysanthemums, you may say prayers, put on a yellow or white burial shroud, and the envoy from the other world will nail you into a casket for 10 dark minutes. You may photograph yourself with your coffin. When M's parents brought him for a grave viewing in Rockaway Beach so he could admire the fine view and see his own grave with a view, he waited until his parents had just faded from view and then pissed on his grave with gusto. The 800-year-old churchyard reclines under the rotting apples in Oliver's orchard as toddlers grab yellow, red, green apples with glee, a wanton bite here, toss it away, a bite there, toss it away. Child becomes apple, becomes child. The vivacious young doctor jokes, we're going to put you in the juicing machine. We'll make Fred juice. How about that? We'll drink you up. To which five-year-old Fred replies, I'm not an apple, but we all know that he is. The Met was evacuated when Roger threw ashes white as anthrax into the orchestra pit. Ashes, he later said, were the remains of a friend whom he wanted to scatter within the houses of music so he could listen forever, a tender dismemberment as remembrance, with the Met as ninth stop on his opera tour. Trying to lighten the mood, I jokingly told Terry they would never be able to vacuum all of him up. Twice today, I've seen squirrel carcasses mashed into the ground by cars. What pulses beneath the day's epidermis? I reel back from seeing. It is the 11th year of the war against the drug cartels that has caused 150,000 deaths. A girl paints a second mouth made of marigolds on the side of her face. Decapitated, disappeared, buried in clandestine graves, thrown in garbage dumps. Only chins and hair visible, women wearing skeleton masks parade in honor of the six women killed every day near Juarez, reduced to ashes, drowned in sewage canals. The lady who cuts the umbilical cord watches over their bones. My four-year-old nieces are playing with their dolls. Aunt Sophia falls off the third-story balcony and says, ouch. She's taken to the hospital and receives new legs, new arms, new head. Aunt Sophia falls off the balcony again and falls off the balcony and falls off. Aunt Sophia falls off the balcony and the lady who cuts the umbilical cord watches over her bones. The last poem uh, I'll read is called Meat and Honey. And I wrote this after seeing a an artistic installation by Damien Hirst, which consists of a 
room, which is a room-sized terrarium where butterflies live out their lifespan. So there's butterflies being born and eating and mating and dying. And I spent a very long time in there and walked in and out through, through the room. was totally mesmerized by it. And that resulted in this poem. Meat and Honey. Heavy rubber curtains the doorway of a human-sized butterfly terrarium. We're instructed to proceed at a steady pace amidst our fellow creatures in this humid environment of birth, mature, mirth, manure. Amidst the exacting children spotting gorgeous color, insects feeding on fever honey, the molting mess is thrilling, dismaying, a microcosm of the pheromonal planet. The room is a three-dimensional metaphor in a climax of romanticism, bringing life into art or maybe the other way around. If the creatures had been houseflies, they would have been hideous, reminding me of my own corpse rotting. None of the resurrection covenant of the rainbow that's bundled into the butterfly. What if he had used small foxes or cats? Maybe their lifespan is too long, but it would make for a hell of a durational piece. I slide through and out and back in again. It's impossible to think of how many lives are happening amidst the wriggling filaments, the legs with a single claw. Impossible to think of those that have already happened and ended, those who are hungry, who are not at home, who are broken, who are falling right now. When I first discovered orgasms, I walked through the world in a haze, wondering why that wasn't what everyone does all day long. How can anyone talk of anything else? Now, I think the same of death. How can anyone think of anything else? I'm terribly attached to my own consciousness. I'm at home in the scaffolding of my own mind, the taste of my knees, the smell of my armpits, the beats my feet keep and those they don't, my compound eye, my proboscis. I imagine losing this. Imagine someone else passing through the rubber curtains, watching me feed on sugar water, spin a silk mat, shrug off my exoskeleton, eat it like an edible overcoat, and fall to the floor behind a trailing plant. It's devastating. And the crimson, yellow, orange, the inexplicably gold chrysalis, it makes the difference. Little angels, little widgets, pumping fluid into crumpled wings until they stiffen. Photographs are forbidden, but they would be useless anyway. The point is to move and sweat, losing our signatures like a dancer's unmistakable ankle. How she lifts a shoulder with curiosity as one might lift an eyebrow. My body inclines toward another. I sip the air with my tubular sucking organ. I am a question made of meat and honey. Thank you very much.